Hi everyone, this is Work Appropriate and I'm your host, Anne Helen Peterson. When you write about the things that I write about and have a podcast like this one, you end up hearing a lot, like a lot about people's jobs. Sometimes I ask people to tell me about their jobs, and then sometimes I just get emails out of the blue, DMs all over the place, just telling me about their jobs. You might think that the recurring theme in these emails and DMs would be bad bosses or underpay or productivity demands. And yeah, all that stuff comes up. But the recurring theme usually actually isn't about their specific job. It's about the fundamental brokenness of their entire industry. We're talking about the way people are trained, hired, retained, but also the entire ethos, the spoken and unspoken expectations, the status quo. Something foundational in these industries is cracked, which means that the structures built upon them are crumbling in risk of imminent collapse. These industries may be broken, but they're also societally essential. That means there are millions of people who have to figure out on a daily basis how to keep doing their jobs even as they hope for overarching structural reform. If that sounds familiar, this new series on Work Appropriate is for you. Every month or so, we'll have a new co-host to deal with your questions about navigating your broken industry. This week, it's academia. And if you're not in academia, you might think these questions won't be of interest. But I'm telling you, if you're in the working world, and particularly if you're in a broken industry, all of these quandaries are going to seem very, very familiar. And even though I have a whole lot of personal experience with academia, we'll get to that in a little bit, I knew I needed a co-host who's still working on these questions of brokenness from the inside. My name is Dominique Baker. I'm an associate professor of education policy at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. So I study higher education policy. Frequently, that means I wind up looking at things like student financial aid. Who borrows to go to college? What types of colleges do they go to? Is that very easy peasy and no problems whatsoever? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Is that a bit of a... (laughs) Right, right, right. Like soups, just like no problem. Or is that a bit of a struggle? Okay. What does that struggle look like? Who Mm -hmm. is struggling more or less when it comes to that? I look at also admissions policies and thinking about who gets into different types of colleges. In my former life, I was an assistant dean of admissions. And so I carry that into the work that I do today. Uh, And then I also just try to think broadly about what do we mean when we say an equitable campus climate? These are like words that are incredibly laden with thoughts about how society works and what our society should be versus what it is presently. And so I try to think about ways that we can systematically or structurally create a type of college campus that we'd hope that people could experience. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you was because I think sometimes people who are on the instruction or faculty side of things, like really kind of tunnel vision, think about this is what my experience is inside of academia, when academia in reality is this huge conglomerate of faculty experience, staff experience, which is oftentimes invisibilized in different ways, and student experience too, right? So I wanted an episode that was able to grapple with more than just the the faculty experience, which sometimes becomes the loudest voice in the room. Yeah, it's it's a really big challenge because we have this idea in the United States when we talk about college, both that we 
are talking specifically about certain types of colleges. Yep. And when we talk about labor within colleges, we're talking about a specific sector of labor. So it's it's this really unfortunate uh, sort of essentializing of both yeah. the college experience overall, but then also who works within uh, as if the only people who are actually working within a college are the ones who are teaching and doing research. One of the things that I always try when I'm talking to like students or folks who might not be as aware of the university as an employer is trying to talk about the fact that even within staff, right, we have different designations. We have the folks who have benefits and retirement plans and long term. And then we have the people who will frequently say technically don't work for the university, uh-huh. right? They contract through Aramark or all these yeah. different pieces. Yeah, so like universities, they can be like tiny corporations yeah. <laughs> that have many different realms of labor. And I should say too, my background in this for people who don't know, so I have a PhD in media studies, but I went to a small liberal arts college and then I went and received my MA and worked at larger universities, University of Oregon, University of Texas. And then my mom was a long-term adjunct at a small state college in Idaho. And then I went back and taught at a liberal arts college as well. So I've experienced many different corners of what it can look like to be employed by a university, you know, even that, even when you are a graduate student who is working as a TA and how different it can be if you're at a unionized university or you're in Texas, which, you know, right to work state, there is a union, doesn't have much power. So how does that change your experience as well? All of it is really, really interesting and complicated. One of the things I always worry about when we think about the university as an employer, as as a site of labor, we collapse down our, our notion of what a university is. Yep. Most of the time when I talk to people about this, they're going to ask me about, uh, well, what's it like for tenure line uh, faculty? What's it like to be tenured? And you have all these competing interests for your research and service and thinking about your teaching. And it's just like we have to think so much more expansively about how higher education works because the way that we talk about even just one job that we say, if you're a tenure line faculty member, that is your job, is so different at different institutions. Yes. I think sometimes we think it's sort of like, if you work in software development, you work in software development. (laughs) And whether you do that at Amazon or I am not a tech person, other place with software development. Uh, (laughs) Like we think that, oh, the job is roughly the same and you might have a different boss or like different colleagues and maybe the widget you're working on is a little bit different, but, but it's roughly the same. And that's just not the case within higher ed. Yeah, not at all. So this is, I'm going to ask you a really hard question, but I feel like you are one of the people that could actually answer it. Is there a way to describe in sort of a concise but compelling way how academia as an institution broadly has changed over the last 20 or 30 years? Audience, I just want you to know she was not lying when she said she was going to be asking a hard question. Okay. Uh, yeah. People people write dissertations on this. Sure. I, yes. No, just no big yeah. deal. Just like, no. Just a but paragraph. I, I, Yes, I love I love this. I love this. Um, oh, and asking a professor to be concise, my word. So yeah, I, know, I would right? say we have seen an acceleration of sort of maybe two strands that I that I think a lot about. One, we have seen an acceleration towards less security. What we generally seem to see is a trend within higher education uh, towards jobs that provide less security around those types of things that we typically call academic freedom, but also around things like just healthcare benefits, 
around yeah. retirement benefits. What we can yep. think of really is sort of like a gig economy being created within higher education. Yeah. So at the same time we see that happening with Uber and all these other different types of jobs, Instacart, we're also seeing that happen within higher education. Yeah. Now we'd say at the same time, we also see this trend of distrust. Mm-hmm. And, and that is distrust within the academy as a whole. And I think this is both true as a site of labor, but also from a broader perspective as a site of learning and education. And I think that these then feed off of each other. That for a very long time in the K-12 schools, there is a very large push for thinking about how you can quantify how much value individual teachers add to a student's learning experience, something we like to call value-added. In higher education, there was this trust within and from, I guess, the public that when I sometimes would talk to people, they would say, well, we don't need a value-added for higher ed because, like, that's the secret sauce, right? We don't have to prove that this is what we do, that we teach learning, that we teach civic engagement, because that's what we do. Right. And it's it's really interesting to me, right, because I it does not escape my notice that the erosion in this trust happens more and more as more black and brown people enter higher education, as more working class people enter higher education, that that is when we start losing this trust. And that doesn't mean, look, I don't trust a lot of people. So (laughs) I'm not saying that we can't have accountability structures, but that this really large shift that happened that then starts getting to a place where we say, well, you know, if we're going to give a college or university money, we're going to tie it to how many students they graduate because we don't trust that they're actually working to make sure that they graduate these students. Yeah. So uh, this whole conversation, I think, is pointing at two things that we should establish as a sort of foundation as we go forward and try to give some advice, which is that working at a college institution has become a less good job over the course of the last 20, 30, 40 years, right? Yes. It used to be a job that was much more stable. And we're not just talking about tenure, of course. We're talking about, like, it is a job that you start and you stay there, right? <laughs> like, yes. it is a, yes. it is a job with benefits. It is a job with 401k matches often, you know, especially if you're working for a state institution. There used to be much more assurance of, like, this is a job that I can feel stable in as a staff member, as a faculty member moving forward. It was also more stable for graduate students, right, for people who were receiving stipends who weren't taking out loans mm-hmm. necessarily to live. Mm-hmm. So... As a job, it has gotten worse. At the same time, all of these same things about college being this incredible value-added proposition, right? Something that can be magic, something that can change the course of someone's life, that vocational awe is still very much attached to the profession, and that includes, I think, people who are working as as instructors, but then also people who are working as staff to create the overall environment, right? And so... It's a worse job where expectations are still very large. And how do you reconcile the distance between those two things? That's where I think a lot of this strife, exhaustion, burnout, demoralization, we're getting that at at the intersection of those two things. I resonate really strongly with this, especially when thinking about the fact that it is it is it has become a worse job. And, And part of the reason that I think that also matters is because I think the way we've set up labor within higher education was always predicated on the notion that we will have an endless supply of people who are interested in these jobs. Yes. And as soon as the job becomes worse and people realize just how much worse the job became, which I think happened a lot for people 
as we transitioned into the pandemic yeah. and and it sort of became a like whoa what we we I need to take stock here yeah that I I think that supply cannot be counted on in the same ways that it was before which is why we see a lot of discussion about oh we can't hire we can't fill for this job or that one and there's a lot of stuff that's being put on people as um Jobs are not getting filled, and so work is being distributed, and people are getting even more tasks and responsibility put on yep. them than was before. So one question that I would wanted to start with is one that we get a lot in different iterations. So I wanted to use mm-hmm. this as another kind of table-setting, establishing question. And people ask, why are institutions so unwilling to fix retention problems and invest in workers instead of driving them away and constantly rehiring every week? <laughs> like, they're, Basically, it's a question of, like, why doesn't academia – Think like a smart employer. Mm-hmm. How do you grapple with that overarching question? Because I think there's actually some real pushback always against thinking of academia as a business. Yes. And, and I understand why. But also sometimes academia is such a poorly run business in ways that could be very easily tweaked, right? Even if that's just thinking about maybe the head of our department should be someone who has some management skills. And, you know, that's part of the thing that's very <laughs> interesting is that People that are often in these type of hiring and firing roles within academia often have had no formalized training yep. or professionalization around management. None. And, 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 and <laughs> Not even like what does a manager like at a bagel shop, right? Right, like, right, 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 right? Like none of it. None. <laughs> and it 100% shows. So yes. I, I think that is real. Part of the reason that they have been willing to just let people go is they think there's this endless supply of people that will always come falling behind. It's sort of uh, one of your former episodes talked about, right, like passion jobs. Yeah. So because higher education could be considered one of these types of passion jobs, you've always got people that are going to be coming. Maybe someone hasn't heard that this is a less good job yet. Or let's be fair, right? It might be a less good job, but it might be better than the other options that it is in front of or someone. Or it might be the only job. Or it might right? be the only And I think about this a lot. Um, People who are not within academia might not be familiar with the idea of what's sometimes called the two-body problem, which is when someone gets hired at an institution, and maybe that's the only option that they have, and then you have a partner who also needs a job. And a lot of institutions are in places that are smaller, where there aren't Mm -hmm. a lot of options in your field. And so maybe you have to take a job as a staff member in something that you're not that interested in, or, you know, there's just, it's not a choice. And a lot of people in the world outside of academia don't always have a choice about the jobs that they're doing. Exactly. To be clear. But it also, I think, creates a paradigm at institutions where they say, oh, yeah, like this person might, you know, maybe they're just coming for a year. They're going to leave. Like churn is just an accepted part and there will be more supply. Churn is an accepted way of doing business. Yeah. Uh, and I, I I think this is true. I think this is definitely true for like the contracted staff who are working with the dining hall or yes. doing cleaning services. But I definitely think this is true for a lot of people all, all the way through to tenured faculty members yeah. uh, that there there are 100 percent institutions that view it as we'd be more interested in paying someone less. Right. Because remember, more often than not, when someone leaves the next person you hire, depending, you can pay them less. Yes. <laughs> so yes. Yes. this is this is a benefit that can work for them. We hear every year about higher education institutions that have uh, done things like denied tenure 
to someone for a reason that just looks incredibly shady. Right. Uh, and and we, we hear that all the time. And people still go and work in those environments after, right, for a number of reasons that we've said about whether or not you have a choice. Uh, it, it might still be the best choice of the options you have available, all these sorts of things. Yeah. And other <laughs> in other businesses, when someone becomes a an employer that is renowned for being a crappy employer, then maybe it's harder for them to recruit employees. But when there's a scarcity of employment within academia at large, yeah, there's no penalty, right? So basically they're doing it because they can. But I think, too, the the hard thing that this person is pointing at, too, is like this question is pointing at is like, this is just so inefficient. Like it's just like it's it's bad business to be bad at business. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You got a bird in the hand. What what yeah. what are we doing? Saying like, no no no, go fly off. I'll just I'll grab some eggs and maybe they'll hatch and maybe it'll work out. Maybe it won't. Who knows? Yeah. So our first question really illustrates what it's like to live through all of these issues we've talked about. This is from Mary, and our colleague Fiona is going to read it. I work part time for a university and part time for myself. I have a humanities PhD, burned out at the end of it, and moved across the country. Now, coming up on seven years after my defense, my work at the university is highly meaningful. I do work that is significant and innovative, that will make the lives of the students who I support better. And that is, I think and hope, slowly moving academia to be a better place. My problem? Well, it's twofold. First is that I hate my university's COVID policies. They never enforced their vaccine requirement. They also want to mandate that I work on campus more than 50% of the time. As someone who has been highly productive at home and who is COVID cautious, these moves make me angry. I have a supportive manager who will fight to allow me to continue to work from home 75% of the time, but the broader institution is infuriating. The second thing is that my work for myself is going really well. It's lucrative, I get into flow easily, and I'm great at it. But it isn't broadly meaningful in the same way. It doesn't contribute to broad social change within academia. My friends say that it's obvious that I should quit my university job, do the thing that is less stressful and more lucrative. My manager at the university says she doesn't think anyone else could do my job the way I do it. I'm completely overworked and I never take a day off. So my quandary is... How long should I keep fighting to try to make the academy better? At what point do I decide to stop being ambitious and settle into the thing that I like, that pays well, that would allow me to take a weekend off, maybe even a holiday? I know that the institution cannot love me back and that only I can put myself first, but my university job, it's important. How do I know when I ought to leave it to someone else and hope they do it justice? So to me, this seems like a trap, right? Like there's some vocational awe going on here, which if right. people aren't familiar with that is this idea comes from Fabazi Atari's work on librarians that basically when someone's work is thought to be so important, right? Like mm-hmm. you end up excusing or ignoring all manner of worthy critique. Like even if like Mary here, you can see it very clearly. And I also think that when you're deep in academia, sometimes it's very easy to to keep those blinders on and Mary has the benefit of having friends who are like, listen, this isn't how it should be. <laughs> but it's also hard for her to 
let go of this work that really feels important to her. And she is receiving support from her manager that I think is affirming this idea that like the work you're doing is so important. No one else can do it like you. So does this sound familiar at all? Oh, my gosh. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it does. Uh, Ooh, I I think that's I mean, this is a, a tough thing more because it sounds like Mary knows what the best option is. Right. Right. And needs to process that through. And I think that's great, right? Like giving ourselves time to process major decision changes like that is really important, especially when we are making decisions that make the best sense for us, but don't necessarily align with what we thought we would be doing. Yeah. Uh, and so being kind to ourselves to give ourselves a space to process that, I think, is is clutch and very important. Um, but yeah, it sounds like what, what I, I was really loving is as I hear towards the end, like, should I pick the job that I like, that I enjoy? It's not even necessarily the, this other job she dislikes. Like right. Mary's saying, I, I like the other job. Right. I think one of the things we we can find ourselves saying that like the job that I do, my main steady W-2 paycheck has to also be advancing my personal goals and beliefs and, and yeah. help to create change. And I think I think that's important. But I also think it's important that we can recognize the ways that we can help create that change outside of our job as well, whether Mm -hmm. that's through community organizing, whether that's through joining with other community groups that are are doing things, volunteering with your local public library, right, like can be just as important as the work that you're doing at the university. Mm -hmm. I think that, yes, the manager is very supportive. But there's also a bit of guilt there to uh-huh. say, oh, yeah. but, but Mary, Mary, you are the one that does this. You do it so well. Nobody else could ever do this. Right. Because the manager knows she's going to be in trouble if Mary quits. Right. Because right. probably Mary's doing the job of at least two people. Exactly. Like, I know this scenario. Yeah, <laughs> yes. exactly. They present that to somebody else and they're like, I'd like to hire you. And these are the five jobs I would like you to do. And they're going to yes. be like, no, I'm good. Yes. No, thank you. No, so I think Mary's rare in a lot of cases, or people that I I hear from in academia often Mm -hmm. don't have that life raft set up the way that she seemingly does. Or if they do, it's a job that they don't think that they would like. And they're trying to kind of, Mm -hmm. they're trying to judge between like, do I take this J-O-B that feels meaningless to me? But she seems to really like this other option. And as you note, and as I, I think we try to talk a lot on this podcast about this all the time, there are other ways to find meaning in your life and to make meaning in the lives of others that are outside of your job. Yes. But you have to not be exhausted by your job to conceive right. of that. <laughs> right. You have to be able to take a weekend off yeah. to be able to find that fulfillment in other spaces. Okay. What about this last little part of this question, which I think is kind of key? How does she know that she can like trust that the person who comes after her will do the work justice. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I frequently say this to myself. And so it's going to sound a little harsh, but I say this to myself. So I will I will share it as well. And actually, I've, I've heard one of my favorite scholar thinkers, Dr. Tristan Millen-Cottom, say this before. And so I feel like it's not too harsh. I can, I can share it out there as well to say, I'm not that, I'm special. I'm not that special, right? So, so, so yes, I work hard and I care deeply about these issues. Mm-hmm. But I would bet that there are also other people 
who care hard and think deeply about these issues. Yeah. And and it's a it's a difficult thing. I do not want to minimize that. But it is sort of almost a release to realize that you are not the only person on this planet who can do your job and do it well with thoughtfulness and integrity. Yeah. And and hopefully that can release a little bit of the pressure that you put on yourself that if you leave, it will all fall apart. Yeah. Um if a single person leaves and the whole game falls apart, the game was then, then the game right. Involved. The game was already rigged. <laughs> this was already a thing yeah. that was going to happen. And the the other piece of comfort that I would give this person is just that I think people who are only children, I don't know if this question and answer is an only child, or people who have taken a lot old eldest daughters often have this this role in their families. But then also people, I think, who have been told their entire lives that they're exceptional in some way, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a narrative that that many high achieving people within academia have been surrounded by. It's hard to let go of that. But I think it's also healthy, right? To say Admitting that there are other people who could be as good at my job doesn't mean that I'm not also good at it. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that creates more of like this idea of like we are in community. Yes. We are all contributing <laughs> in interesting and fun ways. And it's not so much like I have to come out and save this organization, this institution. It's all on my shoulders. Yeah. That That's not the case. Yeah. So, okay. I think we're in agreement here that Mary knows what she needs to do. And I'm very excited for her. I'm, I know, I'm looking. Right? I, yes, I hope Mary writes in to to give a follow up on how dope the new the new job is. Truly, this is one of my favorite parts. Actually, people listening right now is when I hear from from people who have been on the show and have either taken our advice or sometimes they've already done something even before yeah. we address it on the show. And they're like, "You told me what to do, and I had already done it, and it felt great." Ah, that's dope. Work Appropriate is sponsored by BetterHelp. On this show, we get so many questions about practical advice at work, and we give a lot of it. But a lot of times, one thing that people need to do to work through in their lives, in their work lives, they need to actually just talk to a therapist about things that are going on at their jobs. Because you can fix some things at your job, but you can't fix everything. And I get a lot of questions about, how can I find a therapist who can talk to me about my job? Every therapist can talk to you about your job. So if you're thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. A lot of times people feel really frustrated that there are so many options for therapy and they're just scrolling online and they can't figure out you know, who takes their insurance, who's a good match, who's available online, all of those things. But again, I think BetterHelp is a great option. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com work today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash work. Work Appropriate is brought to you by Shopify. That's the best kind of notification. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling flaky salt or fine art prints, or I just bought this new thing called a salt pig. Maybe it's a salt hog, salt pig that you can put your flaky salt inside of. Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. 
Shopify covers every sales channel from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. It even lets you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth, Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. What's incredible to me about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level. Now, it's your turn to get serious about selling and try Shopify today. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash workappropriate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash workappropriate to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash workappropriate. Our next question is about thriving in the system when everything feels like a competition. Here's Rebecca. Higher education often touts its collegial processes, when in reality, much of it is driven under an individualized performance-based model. Whether it's reading my students' course evaluations or competing with my departmental colleagues for merit raises, the academy is built on a flawed meritocracy where the pursuit of individual success becomes a priority. As a result, we seek and value the good opinion of our students and colleagues, even when it comes at the expense of our own values and beliefs. I used to think the problem was with me, but I now realize it lies within the system. All around me, I can see how this performance mindset is unconsciously shaping our interactions and choices that we make within higher ed, which leaves me wondering, how can I navigate and survive within a system that runs so counter to my values as an educator? How can I maintain my motivation when my colleagues view my successes as their competition rather than as an opportunity to collaborate? So this question, what's kind of implicit within it is the flawed meritocracy, but the fact that the flawed meritocracy is also racist and sexist, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the people who succeed within this meritocracy are people who are modeling a certain understanding of what an educator should look like. How do you think about this question? At first I was like, oh, did y'all get access to like my therapy notes? Where did this come <laughs> from? Uh, so I, I think this is something that a lot of people experience and try to think about, especially people who are not white men um, within higher education, straight white men in particular. So I will say the way that I've tried to get through this and the way I talk to colleagues about it is that I am really careful to think about, like, what is my North Star? Mm -hmm. Why do I do the job that I do? Uh, And and the thing I used to tell people before I even got tenure is I would tell them that my North Star is that I want to be a part of a community that helps make our world better. And in particular, I want to help make the world better for people of color, especially black people. Because we can frequently see in research and all sorts of things that when we make the world better, particularly for black women, turns out we make the world better for everybody else. Universal uh, design, you know? Yeah, like, like, <laughs> right? Yes, so, yes. so that has been my goal, my purpose around my work and, and what that's allowed me to do. And, and so I've always told people getting tenure is great. Mm-hmm. It's lovely if that is how my employer chooses to reward the work that I've done. But I separate that from Mm -hmm. my goals with my career because I think when I orient in this way, it allows me to do 
a couple of different things. It allows me to say every time that I'm deciding, like, am I going to start that research project or am I interested in writing up a public version of the peer-reviewed journal article that I wrote? I don't ask, does this get me tenure? I ask, does this further my goals towards making broader change? And when I'm able to do that, I think it makes some of my decisions uh, uh, look a little bit different than the sort of typical uh, faculty member. And that doesn't mean, right, like I, I am a fairly strategic person, so I can look and I can say, these are the things that I think further my larger goals. Okay, what do I need to do to spin them in a way so that my dean can recognize its value, blah, 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 blah. How do I write it on my report in a way that Right, looks, exactly. How do I yeah. how do I speak this up? So, so I don't yeah. want to say as if I was just like, I, I didn't pay attention to any of that. Yeah. But I always start from a place of, how does this further those larger goals? Yep. So I one time testified before the United States Senate, and uh, what I tell people is like, okay, what you see on my CV is a line that says that I testified before the U.S. Senate. What you don't see are the years worth of time that I wrote translational pieces of peer-reviewed research, not always my own, right? Like, this isn't just me sort of puffing up saying, like, everybody should read more about my research. This is work that I was doing trying to summarize, like, the larger field of research to help try to get people to think about if this is what we know, what does that mean for people's lives, how we think about policy moving forward, all those sorts of things. Those were not things that automatically were going to get me tenure. Those were not things that, quite frankly, like, grant funders cared about. Yeah. But... Those things mattered when it came to what I wanted to do with trying to help find ways to to be a part of a community that was trying to make our world a little bit better. Uh, and so they eventually did get to a thing that I'm certain my university appreciates. I think that one thing I've seen as many of my peers or about in my cohort age group have reached the tenure age or the, the point in their career where they would be, they go up for tenure, they receive tenure. And then I've watched a lot of them quit. And the thing that's striking to me is that especially graduating when many of us did, you know, either into the aftermath of the the Great Recession, which is a really transitional point, I think, and just in terms of job stability, job availability in academia, there was just this idea that like, if I can just keep my head above water, everything's going to end up okay. If I can just get to that tenure finish line and everything should be oriented towards getting to that finish line. Mm-hmm. And then you surface and you're like, do I like the work that I do? Do I like the person that I've become? Right? Like, if sure, you can think of everything in terms of this, like, I'm just trying to win out in this faulty meritocracy. But maybe you get to the top of the mountain, and it smells like shit up there. And you want to get down as fast as possible. So you got to follow that North Star, I think, as you've been and, saying. And you know, I, I, I completely agree. Because I also think about the fact that as a black woman, I accepted that I could do everything right. I could follow all the rules about tenure and all those sorts of things. And they could still not give me tenure. In fact, Nicole Hannah-Jones was denied the summer I was putting my materials together. Wow. And so, uh, my poor husband. Um, (laughs) There was a lot of emotional processing. Um, But but right, so, so to me, it's like, I could do everything. Literally everything. And I could still be denied because I unapologetically study racism, because I call a thing a thing. And and so if that's what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. I'm not going to look back and say, gosh, 
I, um, I should have done it differently. I never should have talked about race. Yeah. Bump that. Um, <laughs> right. that that's, that's just silly. And so I could play your game and there's still no guarantee. So I might as well be me and do the things that I think matter. And that way, if, if I am denied tenure, if I'm denied the next promotion, those types of things, right? I don't regret the decisions that I made. My larger goal is helping to improve people's lives. It's not for me to get one more line added to my CV. Yeah. And I think there's a tension here with what we were talking about in the previous questions and what we're talking about now. You know, how do you keep your North Star without also exploiting yourself? Mm. Right. Because other people around you are like, this is the work that you must do. Your work is so important. And I don't think we have an answer. That is life's work if you are operating within the institution of academia. Yes. But there is a way to understand I need to do the work that is important to me, that nourishes me, that makes me feel like I'm doing the right work in the world right now. But then also to say, like, I'm not going to let my passion for that work be used to exploit me over and over again. Right. And excused. I, and I think one of the ways that I process through that is I say, my goal, right, is not to be a professor that helps to make the world better. Da, 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 da. Yeah. I said, my goal is to try to make these things better. I can do that from a right. lot of different places. Right, right, right. This I don't so have key. to be in academia to do that thing. I like, I love academia. I love teaching. I love doing the research. Like, I, I'm here for all of it. But there can come a time where the, the, I can think, that this is no longer the space from which I need to be doing this work. Yeah. And if that's what happens, that's what happens. And so that's, I think, how I I remind myself to not think that, like, oh, the, 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 the stars shine down upon me and I was able to get this one job and it's the only chance I got and this is the only way that I can ever make impact. I mm-hmm. can make impact in many different ways. And this suits me right now, but it does not have to suit me always. So I think that we've kind of gone a little bit like far afield of the original question, but I think we're actually addressing. (laughs) We're we're, we're basically saying to Rebecca, hey, you know what's right. Do what's right. But also understand that like if your institution will not allow you to do that work, then maybe your institution isn't the right place. Right. And that it's fine to say like these things I want to do that are right align with the university's goals. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Okay, cool. You, you, right. That's fine. But but when you get to a point where if they're asking you to do something you're not interested in doing, you think that that violates your uh, moral code, that's okay. You don't have to do that. That is an okay space to be in, I think. Yeah. So our last question is a little less philosophical, which is good for us. We're going to talk about a question that is relatable and practical for people in lots of different fields, not just academia. This is from Michal, and our colleague Amelia is reading it for us. I work as a researcher at a university and I've had such a hard time finding a balance between pressing day-to-day tasks and finding time to do the non-urgent but important background work, such as reading and writing without any purpose. I seem to oscillate between completely ignoring emails and skipping all staff meetings, which I'm assuming I can only get away with for so long, or getting completely engrossed in these tasks and not being able to carve out any of my own time. I've tried blocking off time in my calendar, having to-do lists, putting on and out of office when I'm writing, etc. But nothing has stuck. Any tips? All right. So this is something that I think like gets at the heart of some of the tensions within academia between like the serious deep work of scholarship, right? And it does take concentration and, and time to get at larger ideas. And then 
the fact that like you also are a person who's operating with an institution and you have responsibilities and some of those responsibilities are attending meetings, more administrative things, right? And this is also a symptom, I think, of faculty and researchers like this person taking on more of what was formerly uh, an administrative role. And I've talked a lot about this in some of my writing on like calendar culture and on our, how we think about time management. But I would love to hear from your own experience how you grapple with that division. Yeah. And so I'll throw out there the part of the challenge with giving advice for this, right, is this is inc- really personal. Yeah. Uh, and so I can talk a little bit about myself. But, but what I will say is sort of the overarching idea to me is how do you create space where you feel generative? Mm-hmm. What does that mean and what does that look like? Because for me, early in my career, that was that I had uh, twice weekly meetings with other uh, pre-tenure faculty and some tenure uh, faculty in my department where we would just sit in the same space for four hours and we would say, this is what I'm going to work on today. And then over those hours, we'd work on it. And then at the end, we would say, this is what I've gotten done so far. And so part of the reason, right, like that worked for me better than just doing a calendar is because for me, I needed a little bit of accountability. I need, and and at that time, what was nice about the transition is I was trying to learn the ropes of being a professor and managing all these different claims on my time Mm -hmm. was that, oh, I'm going to go see these people who I really like and I don't always get a chance to see and, and find out what research they're working on at the moment. So this gives me an opportunity to do that and also get some of my own work done. Uh, but for some of my friends, right, that looks more like I have a friend who just did a writing retreat, which was uh, their partner took care of the kids for the weekend. Yeah. They got a hotel room and they did their own little mini writing retreat in their town. Yeah. Um, and so I, I sort of think this is really about what do you need to be able to focus. Thinking about when you did your PhD and in the moments when you have been able to find focus, what are the elements that you're noticing that are trends across those? Are there any ways that you can sort of systematize bringing those elements in more? Um, Because some people putting something down in their calendar actually works perfectly and solves everything for them. It doesn't work for this person. Mm -hmm. So it's really about listening to yourself and, and trying to recognize the ways that you can feel more productive. And then once you recognize them, creating more scenarios that have those pieces. Well, and you don't want to be the person in this scenario, which there was a big kerfuffle on Twitter about this several months ago about academia in particular, about people who like don't respond to invites for meetings and how you have to do all these back and forth. Like you don't want to be the person making a lot of other work for other people, especially because that work often falls on women in particular, right? You don't want to be that asshole. So how do you be more intentional? And for me, I think what's what's worked is trying to say, okay, this is a writing day Mm -hmm. and trying my hardest whether it's using things like um, there are different programs you can use to make your email only deliver at once an hour, right? Mm -hmm. So it's futile for you to keep going back to your email because there's nothing more there, right? Or using the program that got me through my dissertation, Freedom from the Internet, which just turns off your internet and makes it shameful for you to have to turn on your computer again to get it back, right? Or putting your phone in the other room, all these different things, right, to to make that deep focus time. And I personally need a big chunk in Mm -hmm. order to feel Mm -hmm. I have the space to expand in my thought process and Mm -hmm. my writing process. And then when it's email time, being intentional about, I'm going to whip through these emails 
And not in a way that's like just trying to go to inbox zero, but trying to reply fully with the the information that's necessary, you know, getting the schedule done, getting that out of the way, but not just having it be this kind of ambient thing that I do while I'm scrolling around, right? Yes. (laughs) Well, and I think you can also, you can set boundaries and, and, you know, people will test them. It's not hard to set boundaries. It's hard to maintain boundaries, right? But you can set boundaries with people as well about like your email culture that you're choosing to do, right? I have colleagues who say, I uh, will respond to email once a day. And so if you missed my time that day, right? Like I'll be responding to you tomorrow. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. There are ways that we can try to create those pieces. Yes. But I would also throw out there just as an aside, I I think sometimes we're a little bit too narrow about how we think what, how background work is happening, sort of how productivity is happening. We think Uh that uh, unless I just wrote a word that will make it into the final finished piece, this was not productive. Yeah. And I frequently find that it's all the other times when I'm showering and washing my hair and I'm thinking through something when I'm watching the real housewives and I'm thinking about how Uh they approach. uh, In fact, frequently we have housewives, right. Who are like talking about sending their child off to college and they want this one versus that one, all those things that gets my head thinking about status in our culture and how we think about higher education and all these different pieces. That's background work. And it Mm -hmm. might not show itself explicitly in my next paper, but, but it really is the part of like the creative process. So I would also just say to like, give yourself credit. I bet you are being more productive than you think you are being. Yeah. We're just not recognizing that productivity. Totally. And I think that's part of this like, this weird understanding and in, in that oftentimes shows up in academia that like, it's only productive if it's showing up in your CV. Right. In some way, right? When... All of that cognitive work that happens <laughs> is going on in the back. It's going on while I'm walking my dog, right? Yes. It is going on in the shower because, and you know why it's going on in the shower? Because you're not thinking about anything else. Exactly. Right? <laughs> but I think giving giving ourselves some grace for that, but then also upping the intentionality with which we approach how we divide our day is, is really useful that way. Uh, I'm going to ask you one more hard question as kind of our closer. Okay. What makes you hopeful about academia right now? I would say... It's a combination of people realizing that while academia is special, it is still in and of our larger society. Yeah. And I think in some ways, right, that could not be hopeful because of the larger ills within our society. But I I think when we wall academia off from thinking about larger labor movements, Mm -hmm. from thinking about what justice means and looks like. I think we remove its chances of possibility, its chances to improve and become a better pillar of our of our civic lives. Uh, And so I am hopeful when I hear people say like, oh, staff workers should be paid a living wage and someone can respond and say oh well but no we're not like a company we're a university someone's saying it doesn't matter right like that's the thing that should live in wage it's a, still a thing right yes. right it's still yeah. it's, that's still yeah. a thing that matters these are ways of thinking about the university that are old but also new i guess right that yes. like these are things that people have been saying but it's a thing that gives me some hope that academia can be a site of change when it recognizes, right, that in fact, it is not special and separated. It is a part of our larger fabric. Yeah. And so 
it, it can be a part of change then as long as we accept it also has to change as well. I love that. That's a perfect place to end too. I, I'm so grateful that you came on the show today. I think that oh, we you. offered some broad pointed interesting complicated advice which you know that's like that's academia so it's good um where can people find you on the internet if they want to hear more from you i throw off a lot of irreverent tweets uh (laughs) and so if you if you are interested in using twitter perfectly fine if you're not uh i am at baker d phd which rhymes and that's why it's that way and uh i mean you're always welcome i always tell people if you google dominique baker ed policy it's me and so you're always welcome to check out stuff from my website when it comes to like articles or other things of that nature yeah. uh you always have to be really careful that you google dominic baker ed policy because if you just do dominic baker you will find a uh former employee of the canadian government who broke covid <laughs> protocols um and went on a vacation to the caribbean i believe uh which not was lovely you. because not you <laughs> i then got some lovely tweets uh from canada and they were like how dare you and i was like y'all i ain't been outside my house in months it won't be I'm not I'm a professor. I'm a professor. I'm just a little professor. Texas. I'm not doing it. I haven't seen the sun in a while. Oh, amazing. That concludes our first edition of My Industry is Failing. I am so grateful to Dominique Baker for joining me today. If you've got a problem at work that feels emblematic of your industry's decline, please let us know. Some of the fields we have in mind to cover are healthcare, veterinarians, retail, teaching, nonprofits, it goes on and on. You can find submission guidelines at workappropriate.com or send a voice memo with your question to workappropriate at crooked.com. Workappropriate is a Crooked Media production. I'm Anne Helen Peterson, your host. Our executive producers are Kendra James and Sandy Gerard. Melody Rowell is our producer and editor. Allison Falzetta is our development producer. Music is composed by Chanel Critchlow. Additional production support from Ari Schwartz. And special thanks to Katie Long and Sarah Geismer. You can follow me on Twitter at Anne Helen or on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson. And you can sign up for my newsletter, Culture Study, at annhelen.substack.com. Next week, we welcome back Josh Gondelman to answer your questions about building confidence at work. Don't miss it. <laughs>